if you really do exist, and you've made all this, I figure you must have some reason. I mean, what if the whole universe exists so that this planet can exist, so I can exist? If that's true, then you must really want me to be here. Honestly, that blows my mind more than anything. Good morning. We're in a series called Beginnings, and we're going back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, the very beginning of the Bible. And I think it's interesting to even talk about this for a moment before we get into today's message. In a lot of churches today, they don't go back to Genesis very much because it's very controversial, the subject of origins. I, I think what happened back during the last part of the modern era in which there was the idea that science was going to reveal to us the meaning of life, there were a lot of churches that got squeamish about talking about creation because the, you understand, of course, the main view out of the so-called mainstream of public life is that we are the product of evolution. And there were ministers, I think, who became squeamish about going back and saying, no, the Bible says that God created us all. There were actually denominations back in the 60s that quit speaking from the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And I would, I've just challenged you in the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to challenge you again today. I'm not trying to jam you into a particular way of thinking. I just want you to follow the evidence. In fact, the one thing I do want all of us to do is to think. I want us to consider where the evidence leads us. But there have been, you know, people squeamish about it. In fact, those of us who live in Kansas, we can remember just a few years ago, I think it was the state school board that decided that maybe creation should be taught along with evolution. And we became the butt of jokes. In fact, we, we, we became considered Podunkville on, on late night television, you know, as the comics had fun at our expense. People that were backward and believed in creation. But as I challenged you last week, I don't want you just to go back and follow the evidence to what happened. I'd like for us to consider why we are here. Because here's the thing that we need to agree on. Even if you're here today and you say, Mark, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in creation. I'm an agnostic or perhaps you're an atheist. And you say, I I believe totally in evolution. The first thing I want you to know is you're my friend and I'm so glad you're here. And I don't say that in a patronizing kind of way. I mean that with all my heart. I I just like for you to consider what I'm saying today and take it into account and see what you think about it. But here's the one thing that we need to agree on, and I don't think our culture is honest with itself about this, especially in public culture. We need to be honest and say, if we are the product of Darwinian evolution, there is no such thing as purpose in life. If we're the product of an accident, there can't be any purpose, because accidents don't have purpose. They are, by definition, purposeless. I, we, I was reading some time back about one of our soldiers in Iraq who commanded a group of soldiers, and someone tossed someone from the other side tossed a live grenade into the area where all of them were, and this leader threw himself on the live grenade, and it detonated, and it killed him, but he saved the lives of all of his men. Well, if you believe in evolution, in Darwinian evolution, and you believe in the survival of the fittest, and, and as we've said, there basically is no purpose to life, wouldn't we have to say in all honesty that what that young man did was a very foolish thing? Because after all, if there is no meaning to life and there is no future and there is no eternity and there's no grand scheme of things, 
Why would he defy that first law of life, which is the survival of the fittest, and give up his life, give up his one chance to enjoy something, even though there's no purpose to it? Why would he give up his chance to do that for someone else? Just been a few weeks ago that one of our finest law enforcement officers who has family at New Spring went out to, to answer a call and was brutally shot and killed. Why would a man or woman serve in law enforcement and put himself or herself in harm's way for the rest of us so that we can live in security if we are indeed the products of so-called Darwinian evolution, if there's no purpose to life, if there's no meaning to life, if, if we're the product of an accident and we're going back to nothingness when we die, why would someone give up his one precious chance at life to protect the rest of us? I do think there's a contradiction, though, because even among our population, those who don't believe in God, when something like this happens, it's as if we reach for the shadow of design or purpose without giving God the credit that he deserves for for being that design and purpose. I'm kind of chuckling to myself. There's a a group called the American Humanist Association. They are pretty much an atheistic group, and they're spending $40,000 on a Christmas campaign in Washington, D.C. They're putting signs on buses in D.C. It's a a parroting or it's a mirroring of a campaign that was done in Europe some time ago. But the signs during the Christmas season say this. It says, no God, question mark, no problem. And then below that, a line from the Christmas song, be good for goodness sake. Well, I know what they're trying to say. You don't need God to be good. They sort of patronize us, those of us who believe in God, and they say, well, God to people who are religious is a crutch, and they have invented God because they need God. And what they're trying to say with that campaign is nobody really needs God. God is no longer a useful hypothesis. You don't need God to be good. You can be good for goodness sake. (laughs) Well, to me, there's a certain measure of hypocrisy there, because what is good? I, and I know what the answer would come back. I'm debating this both sides in front of you watch, as you watch me deliver this talk. They would come back and say, well, good is community standard. The community, the, the, the group decides what is good. Well, how's that working for us? Because there are a couple of issues with that. Number one, if there's no standard of good... I've got my good and you've got, my, you've got your good. Well, the deal is I may get what's good for me, but it may not be good for you. I mean, for instance, I don't want to pick on Tiger. He's a great guy. I'm sorry for what he's going through right now, although it does seem he brought it on himself. But I'm saying there was a time when it seemed good to him to have eight, nine girlfriends, however many the count is up right now. But I'm guessing that when he was lying in, on the street in front of his house, he was rethinking what was good. And I'm not picking on him because I've had to rethink some things that I thought were good at the time, not good now, later on. So all I'm saying is if I'm being good for goodness sake, good changes. I mean, even, even when you think about the community itself, if you think about a country as we are as in the United States, we change our ideas about what is good. I, I think there's a disconnect there because the only way you can know that something is good is there has to be a standard for good. And I believe, of course, that there is goodness, and I do believe in good, but I believe God is the source of that and God is the standard of that. So if I absent God, if I expel God from the discussion of public life, then it's my idea versus your idea and anybody else's idea. It all goes back to purpose, doesn't it? 
I believe, and, and you may disagree with me, and that's cool if you do. I just am asking you to consider the evidence. But I believe that God created everything. I have no problem with that. It's just it's too intricate. It's too magnificent. Like I talked about last week, it's too precise. It's just, I mean, when I think about all that we know as life, you, for instance, you, we, we manufacture the greatest planes in the world here in Wichita. But you could bring together all the manufacturers, all the designers. You could give them an unlimited budget and say, build a sparrow, and they couldn't do it. And yet I'm supposed to believe that what we could not accomplish with unlimited budget, unlimited resources, and the greatest minds in the industry, am I to believe that that happened by accident, something that couldn't be handled by design? It's too much for me. So yeah, I believe God created the world. But for all of us, whether you believe God created the world or you believe that we're the products of random accidental chance, don't you think at some point we owe it to ourselves to ask the question, why are we here? Not just following the evidence to what happened, but following the evidence to why. What is our purpose? Is there a purpose? Well, today what I'd like to to give you is I want to give you what the Bible says about it. You can wrestle with this, and and if you agree with it, then you'll get the benefits of agreeing with it. And if you disagree with it, then you're going to be wherever that position leads you and takes you. But today I want to take you to what I think are the three of the most important words in the Bible. Because there are a lot of things in the Bible that we could go to, God saying why we exist. But to me, I want to go to the highest. I want to go to the point, the peak, the apex of why God says we exist. And we find it in Genesis chapter 1. We're in the very beginning, and we're at the place in the Bible where God created human beings. And I want to pick, you up, pick it up uh, with, with you, if you will, please. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, God creating human beings in his own image. I want to look at those three words because I think it's the biggest answer to why we are here. We are created in his image. That's all I want to talk to you about for a few moments this morning. We are created in his image. That explains to me more than any other reason why we are here. I'd like to give you the next verse because we're going to talk about that some too. Because it says, Then God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the, tra- along the ground. So here's the Bible very, at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. God's saying why we were here. We were created in God's image and God to our first parents who represented us because all of, them, all of us were in them at that moment. God is basically saying to Adam and Eve, I am turning the world over to you. I'm turning the planet over to you. I want you to govern it. I want you to manage it. I want you to take care of it. I am giving you the planet to take care of. Huge. That is why we are here. If that verse or those two verses are true, if those statements are true, there are some realities that are going to stretch us. Because some of the realities that are inherent in those two verses run counter to what you and I are being told today by and large. And here is the first one. Okay, you ready for this? Because this contradicts everything I've been taught from the second grade on. If that's true, human beings are not animals. (gasps) I know I just said it. I mean, we were all taught, you know, in school, we're mammals. We're maybe at the, hot, we're at the top, you know, top place, but we're all animals. But the Bible tells us, if, 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 that, if that text is true, that we're not animals. For instance, we were created differently. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and man became a living person. You can read about how God created the animals. He called them into existence. 
But the Bible says that God did something very different with human beings. Number one, he formed. The word formed there is like the word that talks about an artist or a sculptor. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, but then he did something else. He did something that he did not do with any of the rest of his creation. God did something personal. God got face to face with Adam, and he blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the Bible says human beings became living souls. I sort of laugh about this as I got ready for this message. You and I are made of two components. We are made of the dust of the ground and the breath of God. Isn't it an interesting bracketing right there? When you think about just the, di- the diversity of that, we are made of the dust of the ground, which is just something that's not of great value. And at the same time, we have the very breath of God inside of us. In effect, we are a combination of the least valuable and the most valuable. Then the second thing that we see is that God gave Adam and Eve assignments. You and I have assignments here. I'm going to read to you from the book of Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 where the Bible says when God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them human. Now the word blessed there doesn't mean that God just said something good about them in a spiritual kind of way. The blessing in old covenant terms, oftentimes the parent would give to the oldest child the family fortune. He would turn the family fortune over to the oldest child, and that was called the blessing. So here's what's really cool. When God made Adam and Eve, he blessed them. He basically turned the earth over to them. I'm going to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. The Bible says in verse 7, it's talking about God making us. You made them, us, only a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now think about that. We're not made just a little higher than the animals. We're made just a little lower than the angels. We're not animals. God turned the management of this planet over to his first creation. He basically gave the earth to Adam and Eve and all their descendants as a gift. Some people who read the Bible think that after Adam and Eve sinned, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and there was a curse that descended, that part of that curse is work. You know, Adam and Eve sinned. They'd just been lounging around the garden, lying in hammocks, sipping lemonade, and after they sinned, God said, uh-oh, now you've got to work for a living. Nothing can be further from the truth because work predates the curse. Adam and Eve were working long before they sinned. It's just that it was enjoyable. You know, when you have to get up in the morning and roll out of bed and you don't want to get out of bed and it's unpleasant and you've got to go scrape the ice off your car and you've got to go work with people that you don't like who are trying to stab you in the back and you're wishing you had a better job, that's the part that sin brought in. Work, when work is fun, it, it's, it's designed by God. And so see, it wasn't just that we're not animals. It's that God gave Adam and Eve a purpose. He turned the world over to them and said, enjoy working. Manage the planet for me. So cool. The third thing that stretches us, especially given a lot of the thought out there in the culture today, is that human beings are the reason for God's creation. In some of the more radical elements of the, you know, of the environmental movement, there's the idea that human beings are basically interlopers, that we're the problem. We're somehow infringing upon the rights of the other animals. But the Bible teaches us something very different. The Bible says it was God who made the planet for us as human beings. A few moments ago, I read Genesis 127. I'd like to back up and read verse 26 of the first chapter of Genesis. God said, let us make man or humans. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. 
When I was a kid growing up in church, I would hear that verse read in church, and I would think, well, maybe God's just being redundant, because it seems like those expressions are saying the same thing twice, in his image, in his likeness. But it's not the same thing. When the Bible says that we're made in his image, it means basically we are replicas or that we are a shadow. For instance, if you're out walking on a sunny day and it's late in the evening or it's early in the morning and the sun is coming down upon you and it casts a shadow, you can't really see detail when you look at that shadow, but it's a pretty good indication of what you look like. And when God made us, even though we're not God, in effect, we are sort of shadows or replicas of what God is like. In in the first weekend, I told you that God has many of the same emotions that you and I have. He gets happy. He gets angry. He's sad. He's joyful. God has a lot of the same emotions that you and I have. We are made in his image. But in his likeness is a completely different thing. It means we are designed to live our lives to be like God. In effect, it's, when, we, when the Bible says in his image, it's like an arrow that points to the past that tells us how we were crafted. But in his likeness is an arrow that points to the future that talks about our destiny, how we were designed to live our lives. This is not a good example because how do you say that something is like our relationship to God? It's so signature. But this is the closest thing I can come to it, okay? My son Jonathan, to some degree is in my image. He is my son. He has certain physical characteristics that resemble me. He has my DNA in him. So when he was made, when God made him at the beginning, he is in my image, so to speak. Now, I didn't have anything to do with this. God worked in his life, and, and God worked this about. But my son, Jonathan, is... In the ministry, he serves a church as a leader. He does some of the same things that I do. So he is made in my image, but he is living out his life to some degree in my likeness. Now, as I say, that's not a good example because it's human beings trying to show a picture of God. But you get my point. When God made us, we were made in his image. We have some of his characteristics, but then God made us so that we would live our lives to live like him. I know that many of us have titles that we've worked very hard for and to some degree we're proud of. Maybe you have a title here today. Maybe you're a CEO or a president or a managing partner or lead engineer. And isn't it true sometimes that we take our sense of well-being from those titles that we achieve? But can I tell you today The highest title that you have is you are made in God's image and you're made in his likeness. You have more value than you can even imagine. If you were to lose your job, you still have value. If you were to lose your health and not be able to do certain physical functions that you were able to do in the past, you still have inestimable value because you are made in his image, in his likeness. Could I get to this simple point today. When God made you and me, he made us to be family. I could be wrong about this, so when I get to heaven, if I'm wrong, I'll look you up and I'll apologize for it if we still care about it. But I believe with all my heart that God made us because he was lonely. 
I think there was something within God that wanted a big family. My wife likes the reality show with the Duggars or whatever their name is. And clearly they want a big family, right? God wanted a big family, and that's why he made you and I. But let me close with this this morning. Things went badly, didn't they? God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, and God said, there's one rule, don't break it. You can have anything else you want. There was a tree in the garden that represented the dark side, and they didn't know the dark side, and God said, I don't want you to touch that. Don't eat of it. Let's take a break. Before, before God created the human beings, there was also a, another group of God's creation called angels. I don't know what you know about angels, but the word angel just simply means messengers or, or helpers. God created angels basically to do his work. But one thing about God, when he creates individuals, he gives individuals a free will. And the angels like us also had the free will to either follow God or to reject God. So in the very beginning, everything worked fine. But there was one angel that was probably the lead angel, and he certainly was the most beautiful of all the angels. His name was Lucifer. You know, sometimes when we imagine the devil, we imagine him, you know, in a red suit, hideous looking and all that. I think the devil is behind that caricature because the Bible says that Satan presents himself as an angel of light. In fact, you can read about this in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel. Satan was, Lucifer was by far the most beautiful of all the angels. But he got full of himself. I guess he looked in the mirror too long, and he began to say, you know, I don't know why we have to do what God wants us to do. I mean, after all, we're very powerful. We're very beautiful. Why should God make up all the rules? And he started talking to the other angels, and it appears from the book of the Revelation that he talked a third of the angels into joining his cause. And it wasn't much of a fight between them and God. God just thumped them out of heaven. But now there's a cosmic battle going on. Very clearly, one thing that Lucifer understood, he clearly understood what kind of sentence he was under. Because even though God thumped him out of heaven, God put him under a death sentence. Have you ever heard about a place called hell? I mean, have you ever thought about, you know, maybe you have some ideas about what hell is like. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. He talks about a place of fire. He talks about a place where people don't get out. It is a horrible thing the way Jesus depicts hell. Have you ever wondered what hell is for? The Bible is very clear that hell was not made for human beings. Hell was created for Lucifer and those demons who rebelled against God. So he understood very clearly what he was in for. But now God makes a world, and he puts human beings. And Satan sees what's going on. He knows that God wants kids. God wants a big family. He wants children. He is now made a little bit lower than the angels, a creation called humans. And God is saying to them, I want you to, I'm, I'm going to give you the earth. Manage it. Take care of it for me. It belongs to you. And Lucifer's thinking, how can I mess all this up? And the Bible tells us, and we'll get there in, in a little bit later in the series, in Genesis chapter 3, Lucifer comes up to Eve, our first mother. And he basically says, let me, let me get this straight. Did God say you couldn't have the fruit from that tree in the garden? Now, isn't it interesting that he didn't point out everything that they could have. He just went to the one thing that they couldn't have. And he, and he said, do you know why God won't let you touch that? He, he knows that the moment you do that, you'll be like God. 
It was just all a bunch of lies because the irony was they were like God. They were made in his image. They were made in his likeness. They were made with, same, with similar components to God's personality, and they were destined to reign. One thing about Lucifer, and by the way, Satan deals with us too in the matter of temptation. He's very powerful, but he's got a blind spot. He thinks that you and I are motivated by the same things that motivated him. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus when he came to Jesus? When Jesus was on the earth, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. And Satan came to him with three temptations. And what did he, what did he encourage Jesus to do? First thing he said, you're hungry. Take care of yourself. Get what you want. Make yourself feel good. Turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then he said, well, why don't you just you know, go up to the top of the temple and just throw yourself off and the angels will come and catch you and it'll be really cool and everybody will say, wow, look at him. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then finally Lucifer said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You won't have to go to the cross. Just take the easy way out and get what you want. You see, Satan thinks we think like he does. And thankfully, thankfully for us, Jesus you know, blew him off all three times. But he went to our first parents, and I'm sad to say it worked. (laughs) Have you ever been taken? Have you ever been scammed? And you lost something valuable because somebody promised you something, and you put down something precious or something valuable, and you lost it? (laughs) Maybe you got a letter from from Nigeria. Someone said, if you cash checks, thousands of dollars. Or maybe it's just on the internet, and you said, wow, that looks good. I can get this free, and yet you found out they wanted your money, and after you believed them and listened to them, you lost your money. Isn't it a horrible feeling to be scammed? To be scammed out of money, to be scammed out of opportunity? Do you realize our first parents got scammed out of the world? God had given them the planet. And yet, when, and this is probably one of the most important things you'll ever hear in church, when, and this is the Bible, so strong on this, when Adam and Eve accepted Satan's temptation, they embraced his agenda, they turned the authority that God had given them over to him, and they came under his death sentence. And the problem is, you and I were in them at the time. They bought his lie, they turned over the planet, they came under his death sentence. And that's what you and I are born into. We're about to celebrate Christmas, aren't we? Do you know why we turn on the lights? Do you know why we spend money we can't afford to buy gifts for people? Do you know why we celebrate with everything we have? People that understand Christmas understand that the reason why we do that is it's all about God's plan to recover what got lost that day. God loved us too much to let us go. He loved us too much to let us be under Satan's death sentence. He loved us too much to let this planet go. So God had a plan. It's so cool because God gives us that plan in Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to talk about it today. We'll talk about it later sometime. But 
<laughs> I love this. After Adam and Eve sinned, they surrendered the planet. They came under Satan's death sentence. God came and he talked to them in the garden. Up till this point, they'd been naked and they felt no shame because there'd been no sin. There was no shame. There was no guilt. But all of a sudden, they were naked and they realized it. And so they tried to cover themselves up and they went out and sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves up. <laughs> that was pretty ridiculous. It's almost as bad as polyester. God came to Adam and he said, Adam, did you break my rule? Ladies, let me ask you a question. Have men changed? Try this on for size. God says to Adam, did you do wrong? And Adam said, it was that woman that you gave me. Can't men point with both fingers, right? Both hands. It was not my fault. Honest, God, it wasn't my fault. It was that woman that you gave me. So it's between you and it's her. And it's not nothing I did wrong. All, we, all I know, we were sitting there, and she said, you want to share something? And the rest of it happened. So God moves to Eve, and he said, did you do wrong? And Eve said, the devil made me do it. So God moves down to talk to the devil. Hey, did you know, there are so many promises in the Old Testament that Jesus was going to come. For instance, Micah 550 years before Jesus was born, said he would be born in Bethlehem. Daniel gave the timetable. We know that he was going to be from the tribe of Judah in the book of Genesis. In Numbers chapter 24, we learn that a star was going to be associated with the birth. All these promises. It's so interesting. The Old Testament is just speckled with all these promises of God saying, I'm going to send my son into the world. Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin. Do you know where the very first promise of Jesus coming into our world is given. It's in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You know who God told it to? The devil. That's really cool, isn't it? I mean, God was talking to Satan. The very first time that God said, I'm going to send my son into the world, he was talking to the devil. And basically, here's what he said. He said, I'm going to send my Savior into the world. He's going to recapture the planet. He's going to take what's been lost again. He's going to bring my family back to me. And he's going to be the seed of the woman because I don't want him descending from this from Adam because if he does, he'll get his punishment. So he'll be born of a woman. He'll be born of God. And here's what God said to Satan. God said, you're, you're going to bruise this hill. I think he was talking about the cross at that moment. He said, you are going to bruise his heel. And one of my favorite lines in the Bible, God said to the devil, and he's going to cave your head in. He is going to crush your head. happened, didn't it? God sent his one and only son into the world. That's why we celebrate. That's what we're talking about. That's why we put the nativity scene up, because that baby born in the manger is God's solution for this planet. It is God recapturing what was lost. It was God pulling his family back. It was God getting us out from under Adam's sentence. It was God restoring to himself what was taken away that day. I want to read to you from the message paraphrase Romans chapter 5 verse 17 it says if death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing you can imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift this grand setting everything right that this one man Jesus Christ provides here it is in a nutshell just as one person, Adam, just as one person did it wrong and got us all in this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. 
One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. Oh, that's what Christmas is all about. God sent his son into the world and what Adam and Eve lost, he got back. He died on the cross and by dying on the cross, he basically paid our death sentence for us and got us out from under the sentence of hell. And then three days later, he rose from the grave and here's basically what he said. Anybody who's with me is part of a brand new kingdom where God gets everything back. I'm part of that kingdom. I don't deserve to be. But the Bible says this. The Bible says I have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness that my first parents got me into. I have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. Oh, let me give you an example. It would be like in the computer age, we've been clicked and dragged out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And you know what you have to do to get into his kingdom? Absolutely nothing. You couldn't. You couldn't buy it. How could you buy something that's already been bought? I mean, you know, if you went to a store and you paid for something, and while you're standing there in line, you'd say, I'd like to pay for this, and the person would say, you just paid for it. And you'd say, but I want to pay for it. Well, you can't pay for it. It's already been scanned and paid for. And if you stay there and you insist on paying for it, they'll call security after a little while. How can you pay for something that's already been paid for? Jesus paid it all. As you saw, one man got us all messed up. The second man, Jesus, came into the world, God and human at the same time, and he did it right. And anybody who will put faith and confidence in Jesus, you get back into God's perfect plan. Have you ever done that? Has it ever happened in your life? A free gift is a free gift. You can say, well, Mark, what do I need to do? Do I need to join New Spring as a church? I wouldn't get you anywhere. We'll get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. Do I need to give money? Can't buy it. All you need to do is just open up your heart to Jesus and invite him in. In fact, he says in Revelation 3.20, I'm standing at the door knocking. If anybody will open the door and let me in, Jesus said, I'll come in. You don't have to understand it. I mean, he'll do things in your life that are miraculous. I mean, I still don't, I've, I've known him since I was eight years old, and he's still blowing my mind with what he's doing in my life. And I know, you know, God forbid this would happen. As soon as the service is over, I'm jumping in my car. My granddaughter's in a Christmas program tonight in Oklahoma. But if something were to happen to me, I know that instantly I would be out of this life, and I would be in the presence of my Savior, Jesus Christ. You got that assurance? You can have it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, verse 13. If you've never done that, you can call. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Would you just bow your heads for a moment, everyone? And if you've never invited Jesus into your life, maybe for the first time today, you understand what Jesus is all about. He's our rescuer. He came to reclaim the planet. He came to reclaim God's family. And you say, yeah, I get it, Mark. I want him. I want him to be my king. Well, then you can pray this prayer with me. You can use your own words if you want to. Nothing magic about these words. But they call out to Jesus. Why don't you pray with me right now? Here we go. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you died for me. Please forgive me and make me God's child. I want to be part of his family. In Jesus' name.
I know that happened quickly, and you could say, Mark, I'm still not sure what happened to me. Well, when you, when you came in today, you got a, a worship card. I've already torn the bottom part off of this. If you just pray with me, take the card that's detachable. You can just put your name and address on there and uh, check the box. There's a little picture of a vinyl packet on there, and that's what I've got for you as my gift. It won't cost you anything. It's got some DVDs and great stuff to help you know what it means to follow Jesus and explain the decision that you just made. It's free. It won't cost you anything. If you want to, you can just drop your card in the offering bag when it comes by in just a moment, and I'll mail it to you this week. I know we're crowded, but if you don't want, if you don't want to wait, you don't have to. Pointing right behind the camera operators out in the lobby right through the middle back there, there's two areas called guest services and New Spring Store. You can just bring your card back. They won't bother you, hassle you anything. Just say, I pray with Mark. Give them the card. They'll give you the packet. You can take it home with you today. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. All of you who attend New Spring, I want to give you a heads up about something. Christmas Eve, we have three services that day. Those services will be packed. In fact, they'll be our weekend services. We've got Kids World going and Jingle Jam. There will not be a weekend service after Christmas, after Christmas Eve. That weekend after, we will not have services here. The weekend services will actually be on Christmas Eve. We're going to have a phenomenal time. More to come about that. God bless and thanks for being here next weekend. We're talking about male and female.